Hello and welcome to today's PropCast. I'm Andrew Teacher and I'm here with Emmanuel Rusu, who's a building surveyor and lecturer. And I'm here with Ben Shannon, who's an architect, mindfulness coach and author as well. And he works at Asale Architecture. So chaps, we're talking today about mindfulness and well-being in design and in built environment. Ben, you've got a book coming out that's being published by Reba uh, in the next few weeks. What, what was the focus when, when you set out on that journey? What, what are some of the things that people are going to be able to read about? Well, originally, I really just started it as a design guide for our own company. It was was the intention. Um, the idea really was having had uh, sort of my own personal story with mental health. Um, I wanted to uh, help architects to learn how they could design buildings that would maybe create a more mindful lifestyle or uh, support people with their mental well-being. Uh, so, yeah, I, I really just started with it. it was quite a small project. I didn't expect it to really go anywhere uh, beyond our office. And but it's been published by Reba, isn't it? That's right, exactly. So um, as it developed, I sort of started to realise that actually this could have uh, much wider implications than I initially realised, and actually it could help architects all around the world to design better buildings that would improve people's mental well-being. And, and Emmanuel, you've lectured on this subject before with offices and looking at how the work environment can contribute to anxiety and to depression. Some of the talks that you've had at South Bank and at, at Brighton. What are some of the things that that you've identified and, and have talked about with people? So the first and foremost uh, thing to to note is that it's very, very complicated when we're speaking of mental health and mindfulness and its relationship to, to architecture. Um, a number of factors affect our well-being, some of which we still don't understand. And so when my research focused on uh, studying three offices in various locations in England and whether the buildings, uh, that how it was designed rather, had any impact on the anxiety and depression of the occupants, um, was revealed it was it's quite a, an interesting uh, uh, result and what were some of the what were actually what were some of the pressure points that you identified within that what, what were some of the causes or triggers so some of the causes of of, of mental Ill, Ill health is um, social is biological is psychological for instance uh, in terms of biology if you have parents or grandparents who had uh, experience of mental health issues, then the key word is there's a greater risk that you would be affected. It's the same as any other illness in that sense. So what, how much control then can the architecture profession have if, if it's, to, to what degree can you control it or, or, or make it worse? And that is the key question. We, we don't know. Take two very distinct different types of buildings one they just say is two meters high a box room no windows if you put an individual there for a week a month there is a chance that if not their mental health is directly impacted their physical health will be impacted where there's lack of ventilation that in turn might or rather probably will affect their mental health put the same person into a very high you know floor to ceiling height lots of lights lots of window there is a a probability that they will be better off mentally in that environment than their first environment. And that's something people are pretty familiar with, isn't it? I mean, we, you know, we talk about living in England not having a huge amount of sunlight during the winter months compared to other countries like mm. the United States and, and other, you know, slightly more sunnier climes. And that you know, would then follow, wouldn't it? That if you've got more windows, people are going to be happier. That, the, the, 
the thing with with windows and buildings has been discussed many times before. Um, I, as part of what I do, I assist the NHS in Merseyside, Liverpool, about designing better mental health hospitals. And what we see is that having uh, patients, putting patients in wards which have windows or larger windows, it increases the uh, recovery time. That mm. is a fact. No one can dispute that. So there is a clear relationship in that sense. And I think that's really interesting to point that out as well, that we're now developing or collecting more and more data on this stuff. We're starting to get a much better understanding in the same way that we did with sustainability in, mm. in the 90s and noughties. We, we started to get a much better understanding of what creates a sustainable building. We're now starting to understand what creates a building that's great, not only for our physical well-being, but also for our mental well-being. And, and that's partly sort of why I wrote the book to kind of um, curate a lot of that research and information. And I think it's really important that as we did with sustainability, we started to integrate that knowledge into our built projects. We do the same thing with well-being, and we make sure that we bring what we've learned into those into those finished buildings. So, I mean, it, it sounds like it's slightly more complicated than, than worrying about how much heat you're using or how much water you're retaining. And, and what are some of then, you know, if you're starting to, to you know, think of it in, in a quantified fashion, what, what are some of the metrics that you can use? Well, you're right. It, it is a lot more complicated. Um, and uh, really fundamentally, it's because it comes back to designing for people. Um, sort of throughout the 20th century, particularly earlier in the 20th century, you had architects like Alvar Aalto, Hermann Hertzberger, Louis Kahn, who were really focused on designing for people, thinking about that user experience. And, and that is what it comes down to. It's designing buildings that people like to use. So putting... It, 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 it's obviously going to be a little bit more of a subjective thing. However, there are simple, f- undisputable facts that certain things, for example, um, a more cluttered space, the majority of people are going to feel unhappy in that because um, studies have shown that untidiness and clutter um, lead to the release of chemicals like cortisone, which actually make us feel more stressed. Um, and this have been the drivers behind, presumably behind minimalism and, and you know, well, yeah, the, the sorts of Swedish design that obviously pretty much everyone's familiar with. Yeah, and I, I think people were doing that not because they had that data, but they were doing it because they knew it made them feel good. Um, similarly, we all know that feeling of sort of being on a busy bus or on, on a tube uh, when it's absolutely crowded and someone's really getting into your personal space. We know that that feels horrible. We didn't until quite recently know why, and that's actually because it activates your amygdala, which is responsible for your flight or fight response. So now that we know that, we're aware, okay, when we when we design buildings, when we design public transport, whatever it is, we can factor that into the way we design and try and create places in which people sort of have more space, have sort of their own... Uh, yeah, their own personal space, really. And, to, and, and Emmanuel, is, yes. it, is it different hugely, do you think, with, with workspace versus living space or, or the same, exactly the same principles apply? It is because, interestingly enough, um, there was some research that, that stated that we spend on average five hours, 41 minutes seated on our chairs in workplaces, a, a, a rough figure. Um, some More of if us, you're an architect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some of us spend an awful lot more time in our workspaces, our workplaces, than in our homes. So for me, it, it was an interesting and, and a raw research that I did when I focused solely on workspaces because not much has been done in that sense. And, and it baffles me as to why that is. And and so what what does that mean then now? Because obviously... Uh, there's still quite a lot of 
development happening, both in terms of workspace. You know, everyone's obviously very excited about co-working as, as the current trend. Mm. And, and how are some of these buildings, I mean, how are they complying with this stuff? I mean, are, they, are they getting better? Are they getting better? Are they getting better at, at recognising you know, some of the things that, that you and Ben have just described? Are mm-hmm. they getting better at respecting people's needs? Are they getting better at, at, at implementing mm-hmm. some of these, these, you know, these recognitions that, that you've obviously yeah. mentioned? I think this is why Ben's book is, is vitally important to further educate us all about how we can apply the things that research tells us into workplaces, into our homes and into buildings in general. From my perspective, it is getting better. Um, whether we are considering a variety of colours, whether it's warm colours, whether, you know, I can see where we're doing this recording, that there is plants and there is this idea of biophilia, which I'm sure Ben would touch on upon. And it's this idea that as human beings, we have this innate uh, thing to get closer to nature. And also this social space is really important as well. So open plan offices can also play a role because we can ask our colleagues if we are struggling with an idea. Yeah, I'd just like to follow up on that, Andy. Um, I'd I'd agree. Um, Obviously, working for a sale uh, in residential design primarily, over the last couple of years, I would say we've seen a massive trend in sort of developers taking more and more interest in in well-being, um, whether that's sort of through the growing interest in uh, the well standard in residential, which it looks like it is going to slowly make the move over to residential. Um, And I think over the next decade or so, mental well-being is going to emerge as a a huge selling point for both residential and commercial property. Um, You know, if if you're a property agent and you can say to a potential customer, we can prove that this space is going to support healthier and a happier lifestyle. It's a great way to add value. And I think the public's becoming more and more switched on and savvy to this issue as well. And what does it mean then? So as as a consumer whether you're living in a build-to-rent development that a sale might have designed for a company such as Essential Living or whether you're buying a property from Barrett's or Granger, what, what, what could you expect? What should you expect? Well, I think, as Emmanuel touched on, that, that idea of uh, sociability, so um, community and belonging, it's, it's so important to happiness. So I think we are going to see a lot of buildings designed, which particularly, as you say, build-to-rent, co-living, they are going to try to bring back that way of life where people are, you know, more in touch with their neighbours, for example, and um, things using things like gardening and allotments um, to create a sort of stronger and richer sense of community. I also, could, just lots of the amenity spaces and lounges and dining rooms that, that these schemes have. Absolutely, yeah, and designing these, you know, these sort of spaces with high ceilings and full of natural light as Emmanuel's talked about and lots of plants coming into these spaces we're seeing that more and more but certainly yes these these sort of developments with these highly social um, amenity spaces that encourage interaction are really they're, they're going to really be I think celebrated over the next few years for the impact they're having on people's happiness and, and Emmanuel at the other end of, of things you, you, you talked a little bit earlier about working with the NHS in the north of England, that's obviously it's obviously a big challenge given the the budget restraints constraints mm. that, that the NHS has. How do we get around that? Because obviously, there isn't a lot of investment that's going into mental health facilities mm. at this moment in time. But clearly, you know, there are many many things that, that could be done because I mean, the facilities aren't great, mm-hmm. and and they are going to be an inhibitor to people's recovery. 
I mean, I, I appreciate that this is a, a very challenging um, thing that the NHS always have had to deal with in terms of budget costs and what we prioritise. But I'll, I'll quote what the chairman of the NHS, uh, Mersey, Merseyside, or rather Mersey Care NHS Trust, stated at our last design uh, champion meeting. And she said, in, in one year, her trust has saved either one million or two million pounds on just staff sick pay alone. So staff not taking uh, leave because they work in a building that they enjoy. And that's also because the service users are more calmer because we are taking into consideration how we're designing the spaces. But also we're introducing things such as food uh, therapy and exercise therapy. And so it's also part of the holistic approach and the activities that we can bring into the spaces itself that also contribute. And how can they get that onto a public stage? Because obviously it's a... It takes an awful lot of convincing and I think we need to scale it down uh, a lot more. So NHS is very grand and it, it takes a lot of money to do these things. But there are some micro things we can introduce in, in our own um, spaces, in our own homes, where there is um, refurbishment um, or alterations that we can do um, there as well. Mm. Yeah, so, I agree. It doesn't always need to cost a lot of money. I mean, mm. particularly if you're talking about people doing things to their own homes. So mm. it could be as simple as, as we t- you're talking about colours, introducing sort of uplifting or calming colours. Mm. Um, or adding more storage, which, as we discussed, will sort of create a calmer, happier space. Mm-hmm. So drunk tank pink is, is one <laughs> such colour, isn't it? Yeah. Do you want to explain to us a little bit about that, Ben? Yeah, I saw, uh, saw an article about this the other day. I can't remember exactly where, where that was, but they've, it was, it was it prisons. They've started painting prisons pink or jail cells pink. <laughs> Um, to kind of create calmer, a calmer mood. Mm. But presumably there's a, there's a science and a design theory behind this. Absolutely. Um, and for example, in Japan as well, um, they, they paint at their train stations, they, they paint them in calming colours. Um, and there's, there's scientific research behind this to, to show that basically it reduces the amount of suicides by people jumping in front of trains. So, um, and the way that colour affects our mind is, is very strange, even to the point where um, apparently um, cupcakes taste better out of pink boxes, for example. <laughs> so I think, as I said, the human mind is a strange thing. It's not always logical. And we are starting to understand more and more about how our environment affects how we feel. Mm. And so, Ben, your book is called Happy by Design, A Guide to Architecture and Mental Wellbeing. And it's being published later in the year by Reba. What what can readers of this book expect to take away and, and and also you know also another question that I should ask is is for younger architects just still studying or coming into the profession, what sorts of things, what sorts of innovative ideas are now going to be up for grabs? Well, I I really wanted to write it as as quite a um, holistic study on exactly how buildings do affect how we feel. So I, I haven't just focused in specifically on light or plants or. Um, comfort or anything like that. I've, I've tried to break the book down into a number of different categories, which do have give you quite a broad overview of how buildings impact our happiness and our mental well-being. Um, having said that, it's not just for architects or designers. Um, the idea really was to write it with um, homeowners, developers, even people who just are into sort of DIY and things like that in mind, um, because there's sort of design advice in there ranging from the urban scale right down to what you might do if you're refurbishing your bathroom so it's not going to be hugely different reading then if i'm a a, you know somebody renovating a house through to somebody that's looking to develop a whole huge master plan 
No, I, well, there's as I said, there's there's advice in there that kind of covers all of those different areas. Um, and you're right, actually, in a certain respect, it's um, because it's designing for humans and humans uh, are the same, whether you put them in a tiny space or a huge master plan, we react in the same way to similar things. So yeah, it's it's the same sort of rules that apply across all scales, really. Just to sort of scaling it up and down. And, exactly. and finally, Manuel, so what stuff still needs to change, do you think? You know, if we're looking forward over the next few years in terms of both the culture mm. of design in, in Britain uh, and 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 I think the way you know, the way that, that that people are using buildings because obviously you can design a building however you want, but it's mm. if people use it in in a, in a way that's contrary to the design, then or to what the design is intended, rather then that that obviously doesn't really help anybody. I'm glad you used the term culture. Um, last year we I organised a conference at RIBA discussing architecture and mental health in students. And someone asked me a similar question. And, and I rephrase the question as how do you change someone's mindset? Because that's what we need to do. It's not necessarily just... Who, whose mindset? Architects or investors? The, the occupiers, all of us. And so I think the it's the people, the people with the money as well. It's the people who are creating Precisely. these schemes, whether that's a residential developer, mm. whether commercial, the mm. NHS, whoever it is. Mm. It's changing, so, changing so the mindset. What needs to change, though? Change our, what? Our thinking about well-being needs to change. Our, our recognition of the fact that there is something called mental health. It, it, it baffles me that we're still having to convince people that there is a mental well-being and there is mental health that we need to take care of. And secondly, we need to now put into the, the research that we've done, putting it into practice from all types of scales. And that's why I'm glad that Ben's book would help to, to add to that. Fantastic, sir. Well, thanks very much, Emmanuel Owusu. Thank you very much. And Ben Shannon. Thank you.